Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today I'm going to talk to Ted Glenn about his political biography of Mackenzie Bowell, perhaps the least known prime minister in Canadian history. Ted Glenn is professor and program coordinator of public administration at Humber College in Toronto. Specializing in public sector training and governance, he has been an advisor to various Canadian governments for over 20 years. He is the author of A Very Canadian Coup, The Rise and Demise of Prime Minister Mackenzie Bowl, 1894 to 1896, published by Dundurn Press in 2022. Ted, it's a real pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you, Greg, for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. Tell us, what drove you to write a biography of, and you may disagree with this, Canada's least known prime minister? This is in part, I think, because Bowl, like a couple of other prime ministers, comes between two of our best-known prime ministers, John A. Macdonald, who died in 1891, and then Wilfrid Laurier, who came to the office in 1896 after the Liberals won the federal election of that year. So what drove you to do this? I think basically it's the power of a good history teacher. Uh, I remember doing an undergraduate seminar, third or fourth year at uh, University of Alberta, and we had this great young uh, instructor, and unfortunately I don't have his name, uh, who who did these um, this this great take on on uh, Canadian history, but you know he left this imprint on me because he always went to the the interstices. He went to the the small parts, the forgotten parts of of Canadian history, and I remember he did a couple of classes on this interregnum period between when Macdonald dies in, in 91 and uh, Laurier wins the 96 election. You've got, you've got uh, Abbott, you've got Thompson, you've got Ball, and then you've got uh, Tupper kind of all squeezed in there in, in this really short five-year period. Uh, and, you know, it, it just, it left an imprint on me that it was just, it was a fascinating, to me, unknown period. When I went back and later on and, and uh, was kind of rereading a bit uh, about it, um, in that period, I think one of the most dramatic periods in Canadian political history is this is this Canadian coup where the uh, seven of Bowles' cabinet ministers basically dump him in favor of uh, Charles Tupper. And so that's what drew me to it. It was just, it was, I thought, is is a great story that hadn't been told uh, in, in Canadian history. So what were the circumstances that led Bowell to becoming PM in the first place? Um, so, uh, again, uh, MacDonald dies in June 91. Uh, John Abbott uh, succeeds him. He has to resign due to ill health in November uh, 92. John Thompson takes over for two years. But he dies uh, in London at Windsor Castle uh, on December 12th mm-hmm. in 94. And that's what that's what starts the ball rolling. The next day, the Governor General Lord Aberdeen goes through the list of basically the uh, the possibilities of who could uh, who could take over. Um, the and and of course the, the the big one, Charles Tupper, 
is off the list. He'd taken himself off the list in 91. He'd taken himself off the list in 92. And, and again, he'd said, look, I'm, I'm too old for this. I'm, uh, <laughs> I got a nice life here in London. I don't, I don't need to, to go back to Canada and lead, lead the, the Conservative Party. So he'd taken himself out of contention. Um, there were a couple other possibilities. There was a finance minister, George Foster, uh, the railways minister, John Haggart. Both of those fellas had uh, some some scandal attached to them, though. And so, you know, the, the more that next day, that Thursday, December 13th, kind of rolled on, Bull was looking like a, like a comer. He's, uh, you know, he's the most senior um, person in the cabinet. He, he's, he's, a, he's a very uh, capable cabinet minister. He'd actually been acting prime minister three times before. You know, he had foreign affairs experience. And everybody liked him. He was a nice guy. He wasn't all stuffy like a lot of Ottawa was. He was approachable. He was funny. Uh, he was outgoing. He was down to earth. And uh, so Aberdeen thought, well, you know what? I think that, you know, the, the, even though Parliament has 18 months left in its life, the currency sapped because we've already, you know, we've gone through uh, three prime ministers already. Uh, he's the guy that can probably get us through to a spring election. So, so they they came to an agreement on on Thursday, December thirteenth, that uh, Bull would be a, a caretaker prime minister. He'd kind of uh, manage the day to day until um, you know everybody could get together and they could get all the the voting lists in in the spring and they they could go to the polls. Now, he, he was actually uh, sitting in the Senate, not the House of Commons, even though he was in the cabinet. Is that correct? And he'd, he'd been in the Senate uh, since uh, 1892. And it was, uh, I think, less of a concern then as, as it would be today. First of all, because John Abbott had, had uh, set the precedent. He, he actually was prime minister from the Senate as well. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a huge uh, issue, I think, at that point. You know, I think that Without a doubt, the issue that most dominated uh, Bowles tenure in office was the Manitoba schools question. It was instrumental in his eventual demise. Can you give us a short explanation of what was at stake in the dispute uh, and why it so exacerbated existing religious and linguistic fault lines in the country? It's one of those events in Canadian history. I think most of us these days kind of forget it, but but how big and how divisive of an issue it was. So back in, in 1890, the, the Manitoba government had uh, abolished the separate school system that had been in place since 1870 when Manitoba came into confederation. Uh, they argued that, uh, you know, at the time of confederation, there was a, there was a large Catholic, French-speaking population that could justify its own... Uh, separate school system, but by 1890 they said, "Look, you know, it's, it's we've got 13 percent of the population is uh, Catholic, seven percent is French. It's 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 a waste of money. It's not efficient." So they got rid of the system and they put in place a did mostly to a large extent a uh, uh, a non-denominational system, um, and that it was it was that action the abolition of the of the denominational school system that uh launched a number of lawsuits and petitions and the 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 issue in in at the heart of it was whether or not um the minority had constitutionally enshrined rights to education and if they were abrogated in any way uh whether or not they uh minority had the right to appeal to parliament for mediation. And then a third issue is whether Parliament actually had the jurisdiction then to remediate the situation. 
So that was, I think, at, at base, the issue. And it took it took five years for it to wind its way through the courts in its various forms and appeals and uh, and formats. But uh, it starts in uh, 1890, and the the decision that really kind of impacts Bull and impacts uh, the Sixth Ministry uh, is the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council's final ruling uh, in January uh, 1895 that, in fact, the rights were uh, abrogated, that Parliament did have a right, or sorry, Cabinet did have a right to hear an appeal, and Parliament did have a right uh, to remediate the legislation. And that's what sets the whole thing off. It ends up directly in Bowles' plate. Uh, but uh, given the fact that Bowl himself was, I think, a member of the Orange Order, uh, what were his personal views on the question? And in contrast, what view did he hold as prime minister and the head of a divided country? Because I think those two views were a little different, weren't they? Uh, I don't know about that. I, I think... I mean, this is one of the most the most surprising things I think about doing 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 this book, is uh, f- just finding out more about this guy because he's he's always presented as this uh, you know leader of the Orange Order. He was you know he was the the leader of the Canadian uh, Orange Order for for ages. He was also the the Grand Poobah of the of the International Order, right? So he's always presented as this this this. Uh, hoary Protestant who hates the French, and and uh, where where in fact you know on on the record, uh, he was an individual who who said, look, if it were up to me, I wouldn't allow uh, separate schools, but if it's in the constitution and the rights are constitutionally protected, I will go to all ends uh, for both me and my parties to protect them. And in fact, his his first um, electoral campaign in 1863, he got trounced because um, in Millville because uh, the everybody wanted him to uh, to kind of condemn the protection of a, of a Catholic aid organization, the Loretto Sisters, and he wouldn't do it. He said, "No, look, their rights are protected, and and as a result, I'm 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 a strong advocate for protecting constitutional rights." And he maintained that position throughout his whole tenure um, as as prime minister. And uh, and and I think at the end of the day, that's that's what motivated him as prime minister to uh, to take the positions he did, which which is in completely. You know, contrary to I think how how he's remembered. After doing all of this research, what's your assessment of uh, his decision to delay the remedial legislation? The sort of the decision that caused many of the problems within his own party. Uh, and with the benefit of hindsight, uh, was it the right decision or the wrong decision? In other words, was he simply indecisive, as many have charged? Uh, or was there some real hope of the Manitoba government fixing the problem without the need for federal intervention and remedial uh, legislation? In terms of Bull's decision to delay, I mean, you, you've got a number of different decisions that happen, instrumental, important decisions that kind of mark his tenure. Uh, you've got a decision early on in, uh, in February uh, 1895 to actually hear the appeal. You have a decision in March by cabinet uh, th- of what to do with the results of that appeal, and they they actually make a decision that they are going to um, issue an order in council, uh, basically requesting that Manitoba pass this remediation legislation themselves, and if they don't, 
They've threatened that they will do so by the end of the parliamentary session in July. There's another decision in November after uh, Manitoba refuses to do this, that they're going to go ahead with this remedy. So there's there's a number of things, uh, a number of decisions uh, around um, this this delay. But but one of the, the, the a lot of uh, historians kind of go back and they look at this this decision that happens in the spring 1895. So in, in April, cabinet issues the order in council, uh, look, Manitoba, you guys have to remediate the situation. If not, we're going to do it, and we're going to do it by the end of the parliamentary session in July. They make a decision, though. Bull makes a decision. Cabinet makes a decision at the end of June or at the beginning of July that says, "Look, Manitoba hasn't done this work, and so we're actually going to put off uh, this legislation." until the new term. And we're going to put it off because we really do believe that there is an opportunity to negotiate uh, with Manitoba, that there may be some room to actually get a deal because the worst situation, everybody recognized, Bull included, the worst situation would be to force on Manitoba a solution. And that's the question. Was there really some hope of the Manitoba government fixing the problem or as Tupper suggested, there was no hope? Well, basically, there was no hope. But what nobody knew at the time is that Laurier had basically made a deal with uh, Clifford Sifton, who was the attorney general in Greenway's government, future cabinet minister under Laurier. And basically, they came to an agreement that said, look, there's no way that the Manitoba government is going to strike a deal with the the conservative government. There's no way. We're going to use this to bring them down. And so as, as much as Bull and cabinet hoped that they could negotiate, in reality, there was, there was just no way. I mean, Bull had been receiving news from John Schultz, who was the lieutenant governor at the time, that, yeah, Greenway might be open to conversation. He'd been, uh, you know, some local conservatives on the ground were saying, yeah, possibly could be open to conversation. And in fact, I, I think this is probably his uh, Bull's greatest downfall, is, is that there was an opportunity to actually use the construction of a railway uh, through the Dauphin region to actually persuade the, the Greenway government uh, to compromise, but he didn't act on it. And I think that's probably his greatest failure as a, as a tactician, uh, as, a, as a prime minister, is not doing that. As, as you know, MacDonald used to say, there's a, there isn't a political problem that, that can't be resolved if a railway runs through it. Um, so yeah, I think he did have hopes, but he, he didn't act upon them. He, he, he wasn't the guy for the job, uh, in terms of compromising and negotiating with Greenway. So the Bull government, uh, finally does introduce, uh, legislation in January, the following January after the delay. So describe the nature of the remedial legislation under the Manitoba Act 1870 that, uh, that was passed then. The legislation eventually gets introduced uh, for first reading beginning of February uh, 1896. The legislation itself is based on uh, a draft that was originally submitted by a guy named John Ewart, and, and Ewart was the counsel for the Catholic minority in uh, in Manitoba. And he had presented this during uh, this draft uh, during the appeal process um, in March. Uh, the legislation itself was designed basically to, to reestablish the separate school system that had been there in 1870 and that was dismantled in 1890. Basically, it called for a, a separate board, it called for separate funding, separate teachers, separate books, inspections, a completely entirely separate system. Um, so that that was that was at the that was the intent. The actual 
terms of the legislation, though, it was it was still pretty much in in draft form. Though it wasn't actually very rigorously uh, drafted. And as the committee hearings wore on in in March and April, it became clear that uh, you know even if it was passed, that the it, it was so poorly worded that it would probably not have worked very well as as a an executing uh, tool for remediation. So describe why the legislation actually triggered uh, this political crisis and how well or how poorly did uh, Bowl manage the crisis in your perspective? Where I was talking earlier about these kind of key critical decision points that that happen over the course of uh, his tenure. And in November 1895, uh, Bowl, uh, with the support of his, his Quebec wing, uh, m- makes it clear that uh, they're going to proceed with um, remedial legislation when Parliament resumes in January. Uh, you know, so it's 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 clear, it's concise. But but over the course of of the fall, though, Bold been having real trouble. I think reestablishing himself as a, as the Prime Minister, just from a functional perspective. He. When he got, he he had spent uh, a part of the summer actually out west trying to conduct these negotiations himself with Greenway. They failed abysmally. He got back to Ottawa. There was a mountain of paperwork. There was a whole bunch of vacancies: House of Commons vacancies, Senate vacancies, controller vacancies, um, post office uh, master general vac- and and deputy ministers. And he didn't fill them. And he didn't fill a vacancy that had been created in in July earlier. And so there was a whole bunch of pressure for him to kind of. You know, just can can you at least do your basic uh, tasks of the office? They're also worried as as some by elections were coming up towards the end of the fall um, about actually winning, and 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 they actually lost some some critical um, by elections. But a number of people, particularly in the Ontario wing of the party, were worried that Bull had damaged the Conservative brand, that he wasn't the guy to lead them into a general election. Uh, and that what they needed to do was switch horses before the general election. And the fellow that was probably best able to do that, uh, lead the charge, was was Charles Tupper. So that is a bit of background. Um, so he makes the decision in November they're going to introduce the remedial legislation. Thursday, January 2nd, the speech from the throne. Uh, Aberdeen says, you know, expect to see the legislation tabled before you. The next day on Friday the 3rd, uh, two of the ministers, John Haggard, uh, Walter Montague, actually sit down with Bull and say, hey, look, if you proceed with the, this legislation, you're going to lose your majority in the House. You've got a 45-vote majority at this point. Uh, 40 Ontario um, members, conservative members, have, have committed, they've signed a petition that they will not support it. There's seven of us in cabinet who will not support it, that you, you'll go down to defeat on this. So they gave him a they gave him a heads up. Next day, uh, the fourth, um, Bolstel, you know, dragging his heels a little bit, and so finally at the end of the day, he and Tupper actually sit down to have this meeting. And about an hour and a half into the meeting, Bull's private secretary comes in with a Manila envelope, and it's got the seven resignations from his cabinet ministers in it. And so that that just that just sets him off again, and he you know tries to stand pat and hold his position, and then. Over the ensuing week, there's efforts to kind of rebuild his ministry. He can't get people to, to into cabinet. And finally, a week later on June the 18th, or uh, January the 18th, uh, Bull and Topper sit down again. And it's only under the threat 
or the, the rumor that Aberdeen is going to call in Laurier, do they finally agree that what's going to happen is that uh, Bull will step down at the end of the parliamentary term? They'll introduce the remedial legislation and Tupper will actually lead debate in the House uh, after a by-election. So it, it, again, it's this, le this legislation itself which triggers this whole crisis uh, and it's, it's the thing that actually ends the whole uh, term of the Sixth Ministry and uh, Bull's tenure. That uh, brings us to the title of your book, A Very Canadian Coup. So uh, in your view, what sort of was the the Canadianness of the coup? Was it the fact that it was the, the the knife went in deep but out of view of everybody or uh exactly what was Canadian about the coup? The knife went in but nobody saw it to a degree. But there was also this lack of animosity between Bull and Tupper. Uh yes Bull actually uh, harbors a grudge against Haggart and Foster and Montague for the rest of his life, continues to call them traitors and snakes. Uh, but, you know, he and Tupper are on good terms. Uh, you know, when Tupper, uh, after the 96 election, comes back as leader of the opposition, uh, Bull is the, um, the leader of the government in the Senate. In 1897, Tupper and Bull actually go on a cross-country uh, tour together. Uh, I, I think it's unclear to me whether this actually happened, but it looks like they may have gone out to Winnipeg to see if they could get uh, Hugh John MacDonald um, to, to lead the party. Then they ended up out in the Kootenai region in BC looking at a bunch of properties that they owned out there and you know, spending three weeks together. So there is this, this incredible lack of animosity between them, which I think is very Canadian uh, at the end of the day. So, in other words, uh, Bull did not blame Tupper directly for the coup. No, he did not. So how did Wilfrid Laurier take advantage of the divisions and turmoil within the Conservative Party? Um, give us a little bit of, of detail about that. Well, th again, this is another great thing uh, about writing this book that I, I, I found out, like, I, you know, I think... Most students of Canadian history, you get the, the basics about kind of where uh, Laurier lies in our political history. But I got I got a bit of of, of deeper insight to to Laurier and his like he was a man on the rise in this period. There's this this great scene of, of him in February '95 addressing uh, Massey Hall in Toronto, and he's you know he's got the he's got the crowd in the palm of his hand, and a bunch of young students are out, and and he's you know he's just um, he's just in command of of, of his uh, of his destiny at this point. Um, what ends up happening uh, during the debate on the remedial legislation in 96 is, you know, Laurier is able to use, I think he's able to see through the strategy that the conservatives have developed. And the strategy is this, that they, they can't renounce the remedial legislation because they're going to say they have to pass it. But they also can't pass it because it's, it's practically untenable. It, it just won't, it isn't possible to implement so the strategy in the House, this is Tupper's strategy, is that he's just going to run out the clock. He's going to berate and bully and talk through and end, end up causing this thing to fail. And so Laurier sees this strategy and, you know, combined with his party's own uh, filibustering strategy, uh, it's, it's, a, it's hilarious to read the, the accounts of, of these debates, uh, people singing and reading from medical journals and drunk and passed out in the back rows. Uh, he, really, he really takes advantage of the situation in order to stop this piece of legislation. And really then, you know, when it comes time for the election and really to, uh, to, um, 
demonstrate his his sunny ways approach to the problem, he's able to say, look, this is the record of the conservative government. They're they're just they can't push or make anybody uh, remediate the situation. A better approach is to compromise, to discuss, to talk. And that's what I'm going to do. So he really set the context up for the election um, about you know him being different than the conservatives. And of course, this leads to, in part at least, to his election uh, and uh, his assumption of the role of prime minister. And he ends up uh, basically creating this compromise uh, called the Laurier-Greenway Compromise in November 1890. Six. What was the nature of that compromise, and how did it uh, differ from the path that the Conservatives were on? Well, I, I think this was the path that um, Tupper was trying to lay out. I think the other part of his strategy, uh, the Conservative strategy in the in the spring of '96, was to actually lay out a possible new policy, and I think this is ultimately what they wanted to do. Uh, something like this, and and basically what what the compromise called for was a um, w- within the existing structure, uh, so no new denominational school board like was proposed in the Ewart legislation, but basically they were going to allow denominational instruction where numbers warranted. So if there were ten students in a rural area, twenty five in a in an urban area, uh, the board was going to have to pr- uh, allow uh, a clergy member to come in and give instruction at the end of the day, after school was done for half an hour. Um, and if there were 40 kids uh, in, in an area, then the board was actually going to have to hire a Roman Catholic teacher to do that instruction. So there, was, there, there wasn't the, the um, kind of the, the strident or the, the rigid nature of, the, uh, of, of, of that Europe proposal. It was a much more kind of watered down. And, and Laurie took a bunch of flack for that, for, for kind of compromising away French rights. I mean, if it, the, it's funny, I was rereading the details of that today. Uh, it also said, you know, French or any other language. So you could be Icelandic, you could be Ukrainian. If there was 10 kids in that district, they could ask for instruction in that language as well. So you've already described how Bull became this leader uh, for the Conservatives in the Senate after all of this. What else did he do following his resignation? And did he come to terms ever with what had happened to him in terms of the coup d'etat? Well, he did. I, I, I think he did come to terms with that. I think at the end of the day, and this is another, I guess, another component of it being a very Canadian coup, at the end of the day, he's a party man. He was there and it was the right thing to do. He strong, I think he strongly believed for the Conservative Party. Uh, it was the right thing to do to hand the reins over. It was the right thing to do to really try to push the remedial legislation through. And at the end of the day, if he wasn't the right guy to, uh, to be the leader uh, to do that, then, then you know, he, he made that decision. He remained bitter <laughs> towards um, uh, Foster and Haggard and Montague. Um, you know, again, throughout the rest of his life, he wouldn't talk to them, uh, you know, always trash talk them in modern language. Um, but uh, no, I, th- I think he was, you know, at the end of the day, he's a party man. And I think that's evidenced by the fact that, that uh, you know, after the election, he becomes the, the leader of the government in the Senate. And, and he does that for another decade. Uh, he, he goes back to his newspaper roots, the intelligencer in Belleville, and he, he goes back to, to writing there and he writes until 1913. 
Um, he continues to travel. He he was a he was just an incredible traveler. Even when he was a cabinet minister, he he traveled by uh, stagecoach, by uh, buckboard through Kootenay region from um, southern Manitoba out to Milk River along the U.S. Canada border. And so he took a big trip trip with his son as well, John, out to uh, the Yukon in 1907. And at the ripe old age of 83, took a took a dip in the Yukon River. He died in Belleville in uh, in 1917 at the age of 93. Wow, he lived a long and uh, I think a fairly rich life, obviously. Yeah. Ted, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and telling us about Canada's most unknown prime minister. Much appreciated. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me again. My guest today was Ted Glenn. He is the author of A Very Canadian Coup, The Rise and Demise of Prime Minister Mackenzie Bowl, 1894 to 1896. This book is published by Dundurn Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. Also, if you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. On behalf of the Champlain Society, I want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. And this podcast and others like it that focus on Canadian public history are sponsored by Don Bourgeois and Susan Campbell of Kitchener, Ontario to honour their respective parents. My name is Greg Marshaldon. This interview was recorded on November 29th, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt, and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team, who also support Champlain Society.